Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. Guess who's with me? That's right. Chuckers Cheek Bryant. I wonder how you would spell that out, actually, if I changed my name to that. I don't know. <laughs> it's a, a lot of G's and or, and or you could just use um, punctuation marks, like uh, um, exclamation points that... Uh, true. In Yanomami. Right. I wouldn't want to be confused with a comic strip curse word, though, which is also random punctuations. Yes, it is. Is it random, though? Uh, well, I don't know. I don't think each one signifies a letter, does it? I've driven myself mad trying to find a pattern. There's one in there somewhere. Right. Yeah. I'm like the guy from Pi. Yeah. So, uh, Chuck, you know much about World War II? You know, Josh, I'm not the hugest history buff when it comes to the the, the wars, mm-hmm. but I know a little bit about the Great One, the Great War, the big one. I think they're both called the Great Wars. Oh, really? No, I think the first war was called the Great War, and the second one was the War to End All Wars. Who knows? Let's leave it to the listeners to correct us, huh? Oh, boy. Um, Chuck, <laughs> uh, did you know that during World War II, toward the end, although no one realized it was toward the end yet, sure, everything was still hot and heavy, Japan's Air Force was actually starting to sag quite a bit, which if you have an Air Force and you're a nation, yeah, the last time you want your air fleet to start showing its age is in the middle of a major True. war. And if you have an Air Force and you're not a nation, then uh, that's pretty dang cool. It is pretty cool. You are a real threat. Yeah, and a rich, rich man, I would say. Probably. Or a woman. I mean, uh, think about it. Bill Gates could probably amass a private army. He probably has one. Probably. He can. You're right, Josh. The deal was was uh, Japan's Air Force was uh, old, really. Yeah. Their fleet was old. Um, not the pilots, but the planes themselves were old. <laughs> Somewhat outdated. May have been old pilots, too. And uh, they couldn't keep up with the, the newer technology that America had to offer. No. So they came up with a very radical idea. Actually, more to the point, Vice Admiral Onishi Takajiro came up with a uh, an idea. I don't want to call it a good idea because it sent people to their deaths. It was a good idea, though, for it, them. Well, it worked, at least. So yes. what, they, what he decided to do was to take these aging planes and strap 550-pound bombs to them and then aim them right into aircraft carriers and destroyers and, and, you know, basically anything that you wanted blowing up. Right. Um, and use them as flying bombs. Yep. Essentially, it talk these pilots into going down. Right. That with was their the problem. Plane. They used pilots. Right. It's called a kamikaze, which means divine, divine wind. wind. Yes. That's good. Cause let's say that together again. Divine, divine wind. wind. Nice. <laughs> That's right. Which is probably the coolest name for, um, suicide. Yeah. I've heard of so far. Yeah. Except for harikiri, which is gut cut in slang in Japanese. Is it really? Yeah. Didn't know that. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, if you, we have suicide bombers today, right, Chuck? Which I have to tell you, I can't wrap my mind around that. I've yet to encounter an ideology or dogma that I can point to and be like, yes, I would kill myself for that. Right. For Not that even call. the Simpsons? No, not anymore. Maybe yeah. during season seven. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but that's uh, that, yeah, uh-uh. a long time ago. Yeah. So um, we, but you can explain, and I've actually read a study before um, that kind of explains how suicide bombing works or why suicide bombers do what they do. Right. It has nothing to do with um, religiousity. 
Oh, really? No. Uh, they, they did a, some, I can't remember who did this study, but they did a survey of people who, um, and they, they defined religiousness or adherence to the Muslim religion um, as how often you prayed every right, day right. on a daily basis. And they found that when you when you factor that in, that being equal, mm-hmm. the the real thread that showed support for suicide bombing or an aversion to suicide bombing was how often you attended mosque. Really? So it seems to be um, more of a social than a religious thing. Interesting. Suicide bombing, right? But still, you can explain it uh, by um, it has that kind of f- structured framework of religion. Right. Right. With the with the kamikaze pilots, it had to do more with a perverted version of the code of honor. Because yeah, this exactly. begs the question, how do you talk a man into getting into a plane and flying himself to his death? Well, I think the you talk them into it by saying that your reward is lies in the afterlife, in the case of religion, or in this case, with, I guess, what, your family name, the honor of your family name? Yeah, and what it was was a uh, there, there was a, an 18th century um, code of the samurai called Bushido. Yes. And what is that, way of the warrior? Yes, Way of the Warrior. Right. Okay, so you've got Bushido, um, and it's this huge code of conduct that includes everything from, and it was created in feudal Japan, and it it involves everything from, uh, there's like a tenant that you don't hire an incompetent person or put them in a position of power just because they've been loyal to you for X number of years. Like, um, in this somewhere, right? Uh Uh-huh. This code of conduct is basically it says that you self sacrifice is is very important, right? And honor comes from death, sure. Humiliation comes from surrender, right? Yep. Disgrace, uh, if you uh, surrender, and that's where the how did you pronounce it? I always said Harry Carey. If Bushido, Harry no. Carey is gut cut. No, no, no. oh Harry Carey, Harry Carey. Yeah. Uh, My so, girlfriend's half Japanese, dude. It's like a walking. <laughs> I have a walking crib sheet next to me. Uh, similar concept in that. Uh, Death uh, brings honor, right? But that's just part of it, exactly. So there's there's all this other. Um, it, it's basically like how to live as a samurai, right? Uh-huh. Um, and the samurai were noble warriors. They were definitely uh, in Japan. They're still revered, and they have been for centuries, right? Sure. So when the Japanese government took this one facet of bushido, uh-huh. that you know, de- death honor comes from death. Uh-huh. And humiliation comes from surrender. They took it and kind of pounded it into their military's head. Right. It was kind of a twisted form of it. As some I would said. say, uh, some historians would call it an outright perversion right. of the Bushido. Right. Uh, but it worked. And it that's did. how they got kamikaze pilots to have a real impact. I, I think at their debut at the, um, the Gulf, the battle for the Gulf of Leyte, mm-hmm. they took out, uh, the USS St. Lowe, um, with 144 men on board. And that was the wow. first time. Uh, by the time the Battle of Okinawa came around, I think in 1944, um, 300 planes outfitted with 550-pound bombs wow. were just coming out of the sky. And what do you do? Yeah. Because, I mean, think about it. Chuck, you've told me this before, right? That if you are prepared to die, you are an indestructible enemy. If you're prepared to give your own yeah. life... That's part of war is like you're hoping to make it out of the battle. Sure. If you yeah, don't you nothing to lose. assume you're going to make it out of the battle, you're the most dangerous person on the planet. Yep. And if you can line up – and I imagine once they started doing this and signing uh, soldiers up, pilots, that it became a little easier to get the next guy in line because yeah. you certainly didn't want to uh, – 
back down if your you know co-pilot was all gung ho. I'll bet with the first the first round of pilots, uh, Vice Admiral Takajiro was like, "Holy, <laughs> they actually did it!" <laughs> right. You know. Yeah, he's like, this is going to be easy. Yeah, yeah, let's line them up. So, well, plus uh, they tied it to the samurai, and what is like cooler, probably, or more honorable to a, a World War II pilot in Japan than to be tied to the ancient samurai. Sure, yeah. yeah, it was like a resurgence of it. Absolutely. Plus, also, the samurai had hands down the coolest armor of any group of warriors in history. Agreed. Yeah. Even Tom Cruise looked cool as a samurai. Which is really saying something. That says a whole lot. All five and a half feet of them. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you're being generous. Um, so this, the, 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 uh, the perversion of Bushido was also extended to the rest of the military too, right? Exactly. It wasn't just these kamikaze pilots, which is why, um, I think 5% of the Japanese military surrendered during World War II. Not much. 5%. Yeah. There were, I think in the Pacific, the Japanese, um, used to flood islands with tens of thousands of soldiers. Yeah. I can't remember which island it was, but there was one. It may have been Saipan. It may have been Guam. I can't remember. Um, there were 20,000 Japanese soldiers on there, uh-huh. and only 10% surrendered Wow, on that one battle. So the rest were mostly killed. Yeah. Like, that's just how they fought. Well, like, that was the only thing you could do. Well, yeah, because... If no one's going to surrender, you're forced to kill them. Right. So in a lot of these battles, actually... Um, you you didn't have to get killed. You could also hide, right? Right. And a lot of these islands, these islands became key uh, toward the end of World War II because right. the United States figured, hey, Midway and the Philippines and Guam would be great places to stage attacks on uh, Japan. And Japan thought, hey, these are great islands to stage attacks on us. So <laughs> right. they became kind of the focal point. Whoever owned these islands had great sway over the outcome of the war. Right, and the, it, it switched hands here or there. Uh, the Philippines uh, were a really key island in, in World War II in the Pacific Hot theater. Hotbed of activity. Right? Uh-huh. So the Japanese had it for a while, uh, and then the Allies did their own um, flooding with Marines right. who took the Philippines from the Japanese. Um, and while the Japanese controlled the Philippines, they set up their own puppet regime. Yeah, not and a kind regime. Either, no, to not the toward the, the Filipinos. Philippines. So the uh, Filipinos had, um, they were kind of rubbing their hands in anticipation when the Allies right. liberated the island because they started search parties and rooted out any um, hiding Japanese soldiers and right. just butchered them. Sure. I think up to 80 a day for a while. Like right after poisonous the, snakes, isn't that what they called them? Yeah, yeah. That's what somebody was quoted as saying. Right. And these uh, these islands were uh, lousy with mountainous regions and jungles. So uh, some of these holdouts or stragglers, as we call them, could root down and kind of disappear. Yeah. And, and a lot exactly of them did. A lot of them did. And actually, interestingly enough... Uh, these a lot of these Japanese stragglers or holdouts kept holding out or straggling, depending on the uh, <laughs> verb you want to use, uh, after the war ended. Right. And refused to come down, right? There's some really famous cases of Japanese holdouts. Yeah, there was one, uh, well, some are a little like more heartwarming than others. Um, <laughs> Definitely. There was one man who apparently uh, was charged with uh, securing an... Uh, island off the coast of eastern Russia. Mm-hmm. So it said, defend this island. So he did so until 1958, yep. long time after the war was over. <laughs> yeah. And the nice end of his story is that he settled in the Ukraine. He got used to things over there and started a new family and just kind of mm-hmm. was like, all right, well, this is my life now. It's kind of nice over here. It was nice for his new family, not so much for his old family. Yeah. yeah. Did yeah. he have an old family? Probably. I, so. I don't know. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, That that is about as 
happy as yeah. the straggler stories go. From there, it goes right. into um, cannibalism. Cam- cannibalism's <laughs> one. Uh, there was one group. Uh, it was uh, they were actually. I think some of them were civilians, but I think it was uh, twenty men, something like that. It's Thirty. Thirty. Uh, so twenty nine men and a woman. Uh, yeah, were, we've, we've talked about this off the air about this woman. What it yeah. must have been like to be the only woman among thirty. Uh, her name was um, her. Her first name was Kazuko, and apparently she used to um, decide that she liked one man as a boyfriend, and then would get tired of him and liked another man. And sure, um, these people were living making milk out of or making uh, wine out of coconut milk, uh-huh. hunting uh, and they fishing. Were, right, they had their own clothes. Sure. They made. Um, they found. Uh, I think a B twenty nine super fortress crashed nearby on this mountain that they were living on. Uh-huh. So they pillaged it and used like the. Um, the rifle springs as fish hooks, and they they were doing pretty good living, like yeah. Swiss Family Robinson style, right? For like six years, right? And and the woman actually, when she transferred her affections, people would mysteriously vanish. So apparently, there was a lot of infighting. I think um, uh, six or seven of the eleven deaths uh-huh. that were caused um, that were attributed to the group right. them, itself were uh, through violence. One guy turned up with 13 stab wounds. Yeah. And then at least four other guys who the woman had dated uh, disappeared while fishing. Dated? Sure. <laughs> That's what you call it when it's like, uh, you know, love straggling style. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Just checking uh, out a movie. Right. Well, they, they were finally convinced to come out um, in what? Uh, 1951. Yeah, which wasn't so bad. But there's there is a whopper. There's another guy. Well, let's talk about, um, oh, what was his name? Yokoi? Mm-hmm. You want to talk about him? Yeah, but I think we should do this dramatically. Let's okay. lead up. Pay it forward? Yeah. All right. Uh, I don't think that's right, but sure. <laughs> yeah, pay it forward. That's different. <laughs> Play it out. Pay it out. Yes. Wait for it. Pay it forward. Uh, Shoichi Yokoi, uh, he, was, um, he was a soldier, a fellow holdout who was discovered fishing on a riverbank in Guam wearing uh, burlap pants. And a tree bark shirt. Right. Clearly a survivor. Yeah. The John Rambo, if you will. No, he wasn't much of a Rambo. That's true. Wait for a Rambo. He's coming up. When uh, when Yokoi uh, got back, he basically, I don't know if he admitted it or what, but he, he said, I thought the war was still going on. And this is 1972. I don't think I even said that yet. Holy cow. This is 1972. I was one year old, you know. I was negative four. Crawling around Stone Mountain, Georgia, and uh, this guy was still... Holding out, and he was found fishing, and kind of said uh, famously, "I'm ashamed that I've returned alive." When he finally came back, right. and he would have left, but he he knew the war was over. I think, but he he said that he f- was forced to stay because of shame. He did not want to return as a uh, surrender. Oh, you're right. Yeah, and and he was kind of met with national shame here. There, everybody's like, "Hey, glad you made it," but right, you, you fell on you, a sword. You it hid. Would've, wouldn't be the worst thing. Exactly right. <laughs> um, in contrast to Yukoi, was the baddest dude in World War II, probably. As a matter of fact, I invite our listeners to email us. <laughs> oh boy, anybody who can, who one, any single individual who can top the man we're about to talk about as, as in badness. Okay, I agree. And Josh will personally email you back and debate you on that choice. I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> But um, this is the Rambo of Japan. Think about it, Chuck. There can't be too many people who who exceed this guy. No, we're talking about Lieutenant uh, Hiru Onoda. Right. Bad dude. Right. So 
if uh, Yokoi was just kind of hanging out, fishing, and and uh, ashamed of himself, Onada was doing the exact opposite. He was um, staging raids yeah. on villages in the Philippines and murdering cows and and uh, stealing stuff yep. out of freezers and shooting he and four at, at fellow villagers. holdouts. Correct. Let's start at the beginning. How did he get there? He was on what island, Chuck? He was on uh, the island of Lubang. I love it when you say that, Chuck. I know my pronunciation is stellar here. Uh, he was uh, he was unaware actually that the war was over. He was a case that that did not know. No, so they he and I think four other guys end up on Lu Bang. He was twenty three at the time when they landed, and Lu Bang is a, a Filipino island. Yes, it had uh, an Allied presence at the time, um, but this was prior to the Allies just flooding the the Philippines with Marines and taking it. From right. the Japanese, right? right? Right, But I get the impression that Lu Bang was kind of uh, no man's land because he and his four-man crack commando team uh-huh. were tasked with going and sabotaging everything they could on Lu Bang, right? Yeah, and they did. They did. They blew stuff up. They, um, I think they, they did something to one of the ports and the piers uh-huh. and things like that. Um, and basically, they were just saboteur commandos. While they were there, though, that Allied invasion happened. Right. And these guys had to skedaddle. And they yeah. did into the jungle. And became gorillas. They did. They did not stop fighting. They did not fish along the riverbanks and get found by somebody who, anybody no. who wanted to talk to him. No. These guys continued carrying out the war. Yes. All five of them until 1950 when uh, one of them surrendered in 1950. Yeah. And then he turned around and said, he wrote a message. Exactly. That said, hey guys, the I've been treated very well. The war's actually over, has been for yeah. six, for five he text, years. He texted them. Right. He's like, LOL. BTW, war over, LOL. Right. Come uh, home yeah. for sushi meal, LOL. Exactly. I think is what the first message said. And they didn't buy it. No, they didn't. And then they blanketed the jungle uh, with these messages. They made copies, dropped them from the planes, and evidently they even played over loudspeakers into the jungle. Hey, war over. Right. Well, there was a, a, a contingent of uh, Japanese diplomats that went and used loudspeakers right. to say, hey, dude, we're from Japan. Like, we're, right. we're for real. War's the, over. The war is over. For like six years, it's been over. Right. Now, Lieutenant Onada um, did not buy this. He and his guys just didn't buy it. They figured it was allied tricks trying to get him out. Yeah. Pretty, you know, I can respect that. But it also shows that back in Japan... Everybody was aware that this was going on in right. the bang. There right. was a Japanese um, commando team that was still fighting World War II several years after it was over, right? And the Japanese loved this. Yeah. You know? In their very reserved way. Well, sure. <laughs> um, and, but one by one, these guys started to go down, right? Yeah. Two of them, uh, he became separated from the remaining two, evidently, and then both of those uh, holdouts were killed. So now he's by himself. Right. And he's still fighting this war. Still holding out. Like I said, when they wanted meat, they'd go and murder a cow. Uh-huh. And I guess field dress it and take the meat back into the jungle. Murder a cow. Um, villagers were treated as spies and were shot uh-huh. at. Yeah. Um, they would get into firefights with the local Filipino police. Right. Um, and uh, I read, and this is not verified, but I read that they actually staged a raid on a local police station. This is back when there was more than just Lieutenant Onada. Wow. They raided a police station and got into a firefight to steal ammunition and guns. Unreal. Okay. So time flash, goes flash by. Flash through the 60s. Yeah. The entire decade of the 60s, <laughs> right. dude. Go through that and go midway into the 70s to 1974. So here we are. It's 1974. I'm three years old. 
was a full decade before Ghostbusters, correct? Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> and uh, Onoda, Onoda, excuse me, is still uh, hunkered down and fighting. By himself. By himself, when a Japanese student who has uh, heard of this legend goes and seeks him out. Right. Uh, a guy, a, a, J- a Japanese dropout, apparently, Norio Suzuki. He was kind of a uh, wandering, drifter, he was a dropout? cool guy. Yeah, he was. College dropout. Oh, what better person to go talk someone into quitting? So he, <laughs> nice, Chuck. He, uh, he, he leaves Japan and tells his friends he's going to look for Lieutenant Onada, a panda, and the abominable snowman in that order. And they're like, okay. All right, dude. Leave your rent check. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> this guy was not leaving rent checks behind. <laughs> no, no. He's hip- he was the hippie Rob of uh, Japan. Exactly. Right? So he goes um, to Lou Bang. It, the first thing he did was go to Lou yeah. Bang to look for um, Lieutenant Onada, who by this time, this is 1974, everyone in Japan is still aware that this guy's killing people left and right and, 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 right. and he's carrying on the war, he's right? He's in his 50s at this point. Sure. Gotta be. Yeah. He, he, uh, this was. Yeah, he was 23 and 28 years yeah. later. Wow. Yeah. Um, so he's still fighting and everyone's aware of it. And so I guess Suzuki's kind of like going to make a name for himself to, as being the one who gets this guy to come out. Right. And he actually meets Onada in the jungle and they become that friends. That's crazy. Yeah. This needs to be made into a film. I can't believe it hasn't already. I, Onada even wrote a memoir. Really? Yeah. It, it was a bestseller as far as I know. Memoirs of a Geisha? That was different. Oh, okay. That was an entirely different story. Although the last some resemblance. No. No. Ugh. That was different, too. Foiled. Um, so Suzuki actually meets Onada, and they become friends, right? Yeah. And he kind of tells him, hey, man, this is the war's been over for a long, long, long time. You miss the 60s. You miss Woodstock. <laughs> uh, disco is on the horizon. He's like, but Ghostbusters is coming. So Ghostbusters is coming in a decade. Yeah. Um, and here's here's the problem. Here's the rub. And this is where the story starts to get sad. You get the impression at this point that Lieutenant Onada, Lieutenant Onada is aware that the war is probably over. Yeah. But he says that he can't stop fighting until his commanding officer right. tells him to surrender. You couldn't write this stuff. His, he was or- originally given orders uh-huh. not to kill himself. He right. was under no circumstances allowed to take his own life. Right. And he wasn't to stop until they came and got him. Yeah. And so Suzuki was like, all right, let me see what I can do. Goes back to Japan, finds this guy's former commanding officer, who's yeah, now probably an 70s. aged, stooped-over bookseller. Yeah. And um, selling little gremlins in a, in a back alley. As part, <laughs> as part of the Marshall Plan, Japan didn't even have an army anymore. There's no standing army in Japan. They're not right. allowed to have one, right? Um, so, But this nice bookseller... Uh, decides to come along to Lu Bang, right. and Suzuki <laughs> takes him to meet Onada, and the guy officially orders Onada to surrender, right. put down his arms. And so after a second, apparently it really sinks in, and Onada is hit with the fact that he's just spent 29, yeah. more than half of his life, 29 years of his life, fighting a war. Needlessly. Needlessly. And killing people needlessly. Killing 30 people yeah. and wounding 100 others, and God knows how many cows, mm-hmm. right? So he felt bad all of a sudden. Yeah, he felt like a fool. He felt bad. But he did come back as a national hero. Japan didn't quite did. know what to do with them because, again, they're trying to move past this. They were, uh, they stood and still stand accused of a lot of atrocities during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been trying to distance themselves ever since of their role in World War II. Right, right. Because, you know, they're, they were definitely the losers. They had two atomic bombs dropped on them, which right. is... Arguably the worst thing any group of humans ever done to another group of humans. Yeah. But at the same time, they lost 
and now they're hanging out with the victors. Right. They want to be friends with everybody, so they're right. distancing themselves from that. And all of a sudden, bam, here comes this guy that exemplifies everything that J- the Japanese imperial military was about yeah. during World War II. But they still treated him like a hero. The guy, Andy, was pardoned by Ferdinand Marcos, husband of Imelda Marcos, who famously had millions yeah. and trillions of shoes. You remember the Marcoses yeah, in the, the Philippines? The irony is uh, rich in this one. Yeah. Because Onada didn't have any shoes. He had no shoes. But when he was found, he had uh, his rifle, 500 rounds of ammunition, and a couple hand grenades on him. Really? Still. Wow. It's a good thing to hang, hang on to that stuff. Well, he needed in, in the early 70s. Cows. Yeah. Of course, it was old weaponry at that point. No, it was in pristine shape still. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Oh, cool. A guy like that takes care of his gun, I can tell you. Yeah, you know what he said, sadly? Yeah. You close your article with it. It's very poignant, I thought. Thanks, Chuck. Uh, when he was talking about his dead comrades who he lost years and years earlier, he said, wouldn't it have been better if I had died with them? Yeah. You can imagine. I know, man. That's a, kind of a waste of life. So people have heard stories of these holdouts uh, and Japanese uh, soldiers being found. I know it's supposedly they found some in the 80s and then the 90s yeah. and a few years ago, but we haven't found that those were substantiated. Now, Chuck and I figured out a long time ago that if you are doing research and you find a sensational story, and in it it says, but they're still trying to figure out mm-hmm. whether or not it's for real, and then there's no follow-up whatsoever, right. then it was a hoax Yep. or it wasn't real. Uh, and also, Chuck, did you want to mention Japanese stragglers in pop culture? <laughs> yeah, I think we need to. Yeah. We'd be remiss if we did not mention Gilligan's Island. Which uh, it occurred to me while I was reading this article. I was like, wait a minute, man. I remember a Gilligan's Island episode with this. Yeah. And sure enough, there was an episode called Sorry, So Sorry, My Island Now. and uh, <laughs> Which is not the least bit racist. I sent you the clip. Yeah. Also a racist was in true Hollywood form. They hired an Italian uh, man to play a Japanese soldier. Yeah. Threw some thick glasses on him, told him to squint and talk funny. Right. What do you think I done the head? Exactly. And <laughs> if you think we're being uh, jerks ourselves, you should look it up on YouTube. That's actually a kind portrayal of what this guy said. Yeah. His name was Vito Scotti, and he played on the same show a season later. Played a Russian mad scientist. <laughs> so I remember that one. Too. Cast in Gilligan's Island. Uh-huh. They they weren't reaching too far. Yeah. So- and the six million dollar man. Yeah. Steve Austin was uh, held captive by a Japanese holdout in one episode of the Six Months. I mean, you got to think about it. When when Onada came back to Japan, that was that was huge. It doesn't get bigger than that, right? That's like world news, big time. Yeah, you know? huge. That's pretty pretty cool. So that's that, eh? Eh, eh. So yeah. Oh yeah, you can read this article, um, which is pretty much a rehash of what Chuck and I just said. On HowStuffWorks.com. I did write it. I like this one a a lot. Yeah. um, You should be proud of it. Yeah. That's in the handy search bar. What, just type Japanese holdouts or something like that? Sure. Yeah. And since I just said handy search bar, that means, Chuck, it's time for listener mail. Josh, I'm going to just call this um, funny email from Natalie, who (laughs) who definitely does not want to kill her husband. That's what I'm going to call it. Oh, is this the pat on the back we didn't even know it? No. Oh. This is different. Uh, Hello, Chuck and Josh, or Charles and Joshua, if we're going formal. We're not. Uh, I love your podcast. I've been a big fan for a while, and I have an idea for a show. Can someone truly be framed for murder? Interesting, don't you think? Josh? Huh? Interesting? Yeah, well, yeah. Okay. Uh, We know that many have tried and failed, but there have been... uh, Has there ever been an attempt that was successful... I know if it was successful, we wouldn't really know. So that's my first uh, 
something that I was going to say right back is we wouldn't know. Yeah. Uh, let me explain why I asked this before you think I'm trying to accomplish such an act. My husband, Paul, had two separate freak accidents within the last seven months. The first one was when he was taking some items up to the attic, and the spring-loaded mechanism came loose and sprang up and hit him in the shoulder. Ow. Luckily, it didn't hit him in the head, and he was just badly bruised. Yeah, it probably would have killed him if it hit him in the head. Perhaps. Uh, the second he'd aimed a little more closely. <laughs> right. The second accident was when he dropped a floor tile on his head. Yes, a floor tile. He was cleaning his uh, workshop garage and had put some floor tiles up on a shelf, uh, then moved a ladder, and one of the tiles came right down on top of his noggin. Oh. While he was building the shelves, he had bruised his hands and cut his fingers, so it appeared that he had defensive wounds. Uh, he said that he could totally set me up if he had another accident and came up dead because all of the marks all over him and all the shows that we have recorded on our TiVo would indicate that I did it. I love all the crime shows, CSI, NCIS. CSI's liars. They're all liars. And that is from Natalie. And Natalie, one thing that I think you've missed in all this is typically when you frame someone for murder, you commit a murder and you try and blame someone else. You do not get murdered and set someone up to have police think that they killed you. Right. Well, maybe her husband hates her guts, you know, and is, and is willing to, to die for run. that. Sure. Maybe he's a holdout. Maybe. Or a suicide bomber. So I think Natalie kind of uh, was a little confused here. When you frame someone for murder, it's typically not something you do for Agreed. your own murder. Agreed, Chuck. And I think it's a fine assessment. Sounds like your husband, Paul, is a bit of a klutz, and I don't think the cops would buy that story. Well, if you're looking for Chuck and I to serve as your alibi, um, just go ahead and send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the howstuffworks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?